Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome back to another episode of Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic, but rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today, we're going to talk about data security, and helping us out today is Charles Hoff, CEO of Data Security University. DSU was established just over four years ago with the mission of demystifying the regulatory and contractual obligations of small and medium-sized businesses to comply with data security standards, including NIST, PCI DSS, and GDPR, and I'm sure we'll find out what those things actually mean in the interview. DSU's commitment to communicating in plain English while delivering engaging patent-pending products resonated with business operators who had very little time to learn how to keep their customers' business, personal, and credit card data secure. Data Security University's unique products deliver interactive education while assessing an organization's security vulnerabilities and providing a tailored action plan for data protection. Data Security University's customers recognize the shorthand for this approach to be educate, calculate, assess, score, action plan, connect to experts. In addition, they're able to leverage Data Security University's cybersecurity, PCI, and GDPR assessment tools to benefit from its back-end big data analytics while marketing their own related security products and services. Although Charles has traveled the world extensively, he took advantage of the excellent schools close to his hometown of Atlanta, having received his bachelor's degree from Emory University, his law degree from the University of Georgia Law School, and his executive MBA from Kennesaw State University. Charles and his wife Eileen are proud to call both Atlanta and Charleston, South Carolina, their homes. Charles and Eileen's greatest joy emanates from their family consisting of their adult children and son-in-law Alex, Mallory, and Ben. And uh, on, on a personal note, First of all, Charleston's an awesome town. I love it every time that I go there. <laughs> Isn't it great? I, I, when I grow up, i got to retire there. It's a special place. Um, and, you know, Charles and I have known each other for a long time. It's got to be at least 10 years. Yes. I don't think that I've met an attorney who smiles and laughs as much as you do. And in a nice way, not a sort of rubbing your hands greedily sort of way. I appreciate that. <laughs> but in, in, a, in a very good, good-natured way. Um, and I, I find that... Um, you know, it's just a joy to, to talk to you. So thanks for coming on. I really Thank you, appreciate Mike. it. It's always great to see you. So you're a, a recovering attorney. When we last did business together, right, we're involved in a litigation case involving a restaurant chain. Right, right. I don't do litigation anymore. I don't think you do. Do you do law anymore? Do you practice anymore. law? No, so I just com- leverage my, my legal background. So you're completely out of the practice of law entirely. Yes. So yes. What, what led you to chuck all that? <laughs> <laughs> and get into get into data security education. Great question. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, Mike, that uh, the, the common thread in my entire career has been data security and fraud. That, uh, you know, my 20 years at Equifax, uh, a lot of friends kid me that I was doing ID theft and fraud before it was cool. 
Um, but uh, that was the, the beginning. And then when I became general counsel for the uh, Georgia Restaurant Association and saw all these restaurants experiencing the, these uh, tragic uh, security breaches, and many of them going out of business, unfortunately, and the, uh, the National Restaurant Association knew my background, and they said, gee, we have 300,000-plus members that are suffering these terrible uh, breaches. They, they don't know how to comply fully with um, payment card industry data security standards. Uh, can you help them? Can you consult? Can you train? Can you help? And I said, be, be happy to, to do so. And uh, it was very old school at the time. You know, I went around the country making speeches, doing the white papers, uh, even webinars. Uh, uh, but one thing I found with, with, with very technical material like this, sure, people's eyes glaze over. And they have only so much. I mean, these are very successful. And at the time, it was uh, restaurateurs. We, of course, branched out considerably. But uh, they have very important jobs to do, and they only have so much time where they could focus on something other than their operations. Uh, so the genesis of, um, of the company was I had a, a very good friend, still do, who uh, was one of the top guys in at uh, WebMD, one of the first guys in. And he said, gee, make it engaging. Make it as entertaining as possible and get them through it as quickly. And so that's really what started. And that's how we, we got into it. And, uh, and after I started doing it, I realized, gee, I, I so much in, better enjoy this than I did handling class action suits, which, uh, uh, you know, even though it was against the bad guys when you had breaches, uh, I still I love this process where in a very quick and uh, in easy fashion, we do demystify and, and, and help in, in terms of remedying it. Now, that entertaining part, uh, I'm going to go off script for a minute because I haven't really heard this elevator pitch before. That entertaining part is, is important, right? Because, you know, you want to get your kids to eat their vegetables, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with putting a little bit of sauce on them. Right, that's what it exactly. takes to eat the vegetables, right? And if you're going to have people go through that education, you know, why not, why not not make it a waterboarding session? <laughs> <laughs> to get to get through, right? There's no so reason true. you can't do that if you just if you kind of take the time and make the effort. It doesn't have to be a yuck yuck session, but you know it doesn't sort of have to be you know Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller's Day Off either, just sort of you know droning on in front of the audience, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's got to be user friendly. It's got to be non technical, and we take a lot of pride in in our videos. Because uh, even though in some fashion they may appear to be lighthearted, it's, they really get to the very core. And, um, and they're short, and people get through it. And they said, gee, that, that was a painless way of learning something that, that was so incredible uh, in terms of it normally being very dense, but, uh, but breaking it out in that fashion. So how long is your typical video? Uh, you don't want to make it more than three minutes if you can, <laughs> if you can avoid it. Three minutes, really? Uh, typically. You... Sometimes we go a little bit over, but uh, not much. You can teach what you need in three minutes. You can give a nice primer. You could lay the foundation, and that's what we try to achieve with the videos. And so in, in the way that you're – I know I'm going off script, but, but this is fine. So in the way that you're modeled, do people pay by the video? Do they buy a subscription? <laughs> how, how does that whole – Yeah, great, great question. Uh, in terms of our <laughs> business model, um, we really um, provide to some for the many. Um, we – have a model which we provide a license for our application. Our application, I'll go into it in a moment if you like, is Security of Six Power. But uh, we have companies like Paychex. Uh, there's uh, some great Atlanta companies that we're very proud to call our, our own as customers, uh, um, you know, InsureTrust. And uh, uh, we, we have a number of, uh, of them that, 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 that you would know, Bluefin. And uh, what they do is they license 
and white label or gray label our platform. And so by virtue of doing that, their customers, their vendors, uh, their franchisees, uh, for instance, like Jimmy John's uh, Franchisee Association is a customer, uh, they're able to have access uh, throughout the year, anytime they want, as many times as they need, uh, to the education, the training, and uh, the risk assessment. So you said something in, in the intro here where you were in data security before data security was cool. <laughs> Why is it suddenly cool now? Well, in, in terms of cool, it's, um, it's become something that uh, has become a great occupation. And, uh, you know, it's funny, when I first got into this, uh, um, uh, there were very few law firms that, that even touched it. And now just about every reputable law firm has their own uh, cybersecurity team. And uh, it, it is so essential. I mean, it, it's the greatest existential threat that uh, small businesses have, and, and, of course, even the large ones, for that matter. But uh, it'll take a, a small, medium-sized business uh, uh, into bankruptcy before you know it, and we can get into that, of course. Um, and the, the frightening thing is that by 2021, it's expected to, they're expected to have $6 trillion, that's with a T, $6 trillion of losses attributed to cybersecurity breaches. In that's two, a big number. It is. It, it was $3 trillion in 2015. Uh, this year, you're looking at about $11.4 billion, uh, as a result of ransomware, which we can discuss as well. So with those kind of numbers, with, very frankly, national security, uh, 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 we, we're into a cyber war at this point. Uh, it's so critical to everything that, uh, in the way we live, our democracy, our, our economy. And so it, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge issue. So, you know, I, I grew up with computers, I'm Generation X, and data security in the very early sort of the 8-bit Atari, Commodore, Apple era, <laughs> it was really about pirating games. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Like getting a copy of Zaxxon or whatever. Right. Um, and, and But now I get, you know, it's, it's had to evolve. You know, then, then we went to semi-online data services like CompuServe and Prodigy and those guys. But right. even then, I don't think data security is necessarily a big deal it's 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 got to be that we're you know just everything now is just so connected right yeah. and it's just dizzying we probably the average person including myself probably doesn't understand just how exposed we all are and, and that's what's so frightening really and uh and that's what we try to do in just a short period of time again going back to making it user friendly non technical and giving people a foundation as quickly as possible because there's so much to it and it is so dense and complex that it's so easy for people just to, uh, I mean, you're a technical guy, you know the stuff, but so many people just, hey, look, I don't have time for this, uh, I'm, I'm getting confused, and just throw their hands up. And uh, you want to avoid that at all costs. I mean, even for me, you know, that, that, that the data security evolved for me as far as, you know, antivirus software right. and anti-adware and, right. uh, you know, things getting loaded onto your browser, you know, even, you know, but, but, yeah, you know, it's it's even beyond that now, right? I mean, oh. it, that's all well and good, but ha- but just just knowing you have up to date virus software doesn't mean you're data secure, right? <laughs> well, it's a start. It's a start. It's a start, Mike. Uh, 
Yeah, then you add to it uh, uh, penetration testing, uh, uh, vulnerability testing, VPN routers, the the firewall, the point-to-point encryption, the tokenization, the EMV, which is the chip and pin, uh, uh, multi-factor authentication, the list goes on and on. But it, the, the good news is, the very good news is, approximately 90% of all breaches can be avoided by just simple safeguards. It's a matter of taking people, process, and technology and in an integrated fashion, making it work. It doesn't have to be as complicated as it initially sounds. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I've studied this a little bit and indirectly experienced it. Uh, you know, I've, I've done some studies on, on the value impact of comp- on companies of data breaches and kind of what mm-hmm. happens to them. And that's beyond the scope of this, this conversation. But I, I clearly remember one of the incidents that was uh, cited was uh, I think it was a VA hospital in Minnesota. Right. And they had 4,000 medical records exposed because some guy wandered off the street, asked the nurse if he could borrow a laptop, and she gave it to him. And he just walked out with a laptop. Yes. Right? That's not a technical thing. That's a, if somebody asks a laptop, right. say no. Well, th- that's exactly right. And, and what people forget so many times and they get lost in technology, that approximately 90% of breaches are employee-related. I mean, they're bringing in tab- tablets, they got the, the, the mobile devices, they got the laptops, and, uh, and of course, so many are victims to uh, phishing and spear phishing, uh, uh, and uh, it just is an awful situation. As a matter of fact, uh, the stats, and, and I don't, I'm, and I'll apologize for getting too much into stats. No, but, I uh, love it. Uh, the, they are very profound. They're very sobering. Uh, uh, if you look at a small business... Uh, the average amount of malicious emails and, and over 90% of um, a ransomware come in through, um, through these malicious um, emails. Um, you're looking at um, nine, um, nine phishing emails a month on average. So if you're a small company with 10 employees, that's 90 times where just with emails – you know, through guys trying, like a trusted source, trying to fool you. And, look, it, it's great if it doesn't get through the firewall or you got an email filter that's working. But what it comes down to is employees have to be well-trained and understand that, you know, even though it looks like it's coming from my CEO and I need to pay attention, not to click. And so training is so very, very essential. Yeah, and in and, and point of fact – a dear friend of mine was a, CE, a CFO of a nonprofit, and she lost her job because she fell victim to a spear phishing attack. Wound up invert. Yeah. She thought that her boss had asked for tax returns of certain donors. Right. She sent them. All of a sudden, that data is exposed, and she had to take the blame for it, and she was out. That was well, it. There's too many war stories like that. Uh, here in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area, uh, there was a company where you had a CEO, a small company, but the CEO was, um, I believe he had to attend a funeral. Uh, the COO uh, was going to a conference, an event. And, of course, everybody posts with social media now, so it's not difficult for the bad guys to, to really uh, determine who your children, the names of your children, the wife, spouse, uh, husband. Uh, and you had a situation where, uh, they actually uh, did some spear phishing for the controller who was left in the office. It looked like it was coming from the CEO, the email. 
saying that, look, we, we, uh, I'm away at the funeral. Uh, Fred, or I'll make up a name, Fred is uh, off to the conference. Uh, we're doing a quick, quick acquisition, a small one. Uh, first confirm that you got this email and that, um, that, that you're aware uh, that uh, it's coming from me, and just give me confirmation of that fact. And she shot it right back, yes, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, uh, and uh, your condolences, you know, in terms of the funeral. And uh, he said, well, thank you. Uh, let's go ahead, and I'm going to have a lawyer contact you, and so we can get the wiring instructions, because we need to make this happen immediately while I'm out of town. And sure enough, she wired the money, $1.7 million. Oh. And, and just to be, to, you know, spear phishing, for those of you who are listening who may not know, spear phishing is, is like a phishing attack, but but is more targeted and sophisticated in that the perpetrators are able to mimic somebody usually within inside the organization that you would expect to receive an email from. That's right? So it doesn't look like a Nigerian gold scam or anything like that, but it looks like, it looks like somebody that you trust, right? And in, in the case of, of my friend's organization, yeah, I'm biased, but to me the organization was at fault because they'd never provided any training. Right. She'd never heard of spear phishing before then. Nobody in the organization was. Um, you know, she just got unlucky, and the perpetrators got lucky. They picked on the right organization at the right time. Yes, she has some blame, but it was really that it occurred because there was a systemic failure. Uh, unquestionably, and uh, that's why phishing, testing, simulation, it, it, it's critical because it's gotten so, so sophisticated. And so it's, it's very, very important to not only train but test constantly. And one of, through our partner, uh, we, we provide that. And uh, we even do a gamification to keep them incented. And, and you know, li- like so many things, um, the, the attacker only has to be successful once. That's right. And they may be attacking literally millions of times if they're using bots of some kind, right? A small percentage gets through, but you talk about that, that, that nine-person firm, right, and they get 90, you know, the 90 things that get through. If you even have a 1% failure rate, that's a disaster. If you have a 1,000th a of 1% failure rate, it's probably still a disaster. Uh, absolutely. And again, some more stories. Um, orthopedic group, uh, I understand they're worth, um, I've heard figures like $150 million. They were victims. And... Uh, uh, they end up selling their hospital their, uh, to a hospital for zero, for $1, Oof. because their value had been taken all the way down because of all the uh, personal records, the health records that were exposed for a breach. And I mean, uh, look at the city of Atlanta. I mean, uh, you had ransomware, just it wasn't that long ago. Yep. You know what that demand was for, by the way? I don't recall. It was $51,000. And the uh, city of Atlanta refused it, which a lot of companies and entities do, and you can go both ways on whether they should or not. The yep. FBI still recommends that you don't, but uh, a lot do. Um, the end result, uh, $17 million in recovery fees, another $5 million to build out the infrastructure that was damaged. Oof. So I'm a small business owner. I'm listening to this. Right. I'm either reaching for scotch or I'm breathing <laughs> into a brown paper bag, or maybe I'm doing both, right? Right. As a small business owner, I mean, what – I don't have the resources that a Home Depot has. and they, they, Even they had a major breach. Target did. Right. Uh, almost anyone we can name probably has had one or they're going to in the next five years. True. I'm a small business. What do I need to do? How can I, in some economical <clears throat> way, protect myself from just this onslaught of, of people that are trying to rip off my data and right. 
you know, sink my company. Right. Uh, well, the first, the first lesson really is to understand that uh, even though you're a small business and you don't think that maybe anybody's targeting you, well, the fact of the matter is that the last statistics I've seen are uh, 61% have actually been the target of, um, of the hackers. Makes sense, right? And, you're less yeah. likely to have Well, protection. that's it, because exactly what you're saying, that they don't have the resources, uh, they um, you know, are, are really lean, uh, but so often they don't think that they're exposed. And uh, what really happens is that uh, they call it, the hackers call it um, a spray and pray, where they just really, sh- you know, it's a shotgun type effect in terms of uh, what they do with, with, with phishing and ransomware and, uh, and see what sticks. And it's just, that's where the opening and vulnerability just happens to be with those uh, small, medium-sized businesses. And uh, unfortunately, they, be, they become a target. So uh, the first thing is to realize that uh, there's a good likelihood that you're going to be breached and then do something about it. Be, be proactive. I've had too many clients, unfortunately, come to me after the fact where they become very knowledgeable after they've been breached in what they should have done. But this is the time uh, to do it. And you start out with, uh, first of all, doing an inventory of your sensitive data. You know, healthcare data, personal data, credit char- uh, customer credit card data, where everything is kept, and the systems that you have. Uh, and then really you... you you have trusted, certified professionals, and this is part of what we do to connect with the, uh, the most trusted in the, in the field, the most reputable, because you can get, have a problem if you don't go to the right people, but have them perform an audit. But you be a partner with them and understand what they're doing, and then put together, again, going back to that people, process, and technology, and having an integrated, layered approach uh, making sure that you have a incident recovery plan because you can't make it up as you go. It's like a crisis management. If you're in that crisis, you've you got to move. You've you got to have the playbook. And you need to have a recovery plan for getting back that data. And uh, uh, those are things that, that, that are so very critical in, in the equation. So let's put ourselves in the, in the, in the seat of people that you were once very closely involved with a restaurant. Restaurants got $2 million of revenue. Right. If they're doing great, they're clearing $100,000, right? Yes. Can those businesses, can those businesses afford to be secure? Realistically. Uh, Realistically, yes. And that's, that's a great takeaway here, Mike. And, And that's the good news because it doesn't have to be that expensive. Because I think it, about all these nerds coming in and doing simulations and audits and stuff, and I mean that. I mean that sounds expensive. It, it look it, it is with large enterprises, and uh, you know when you talk about the, the assessments and the analysis, but uh, and, and that's why we, we focus. You know, I'd like my legacy to be that I help the, these uh, small and medium sized businesses avoid uh, breaches because. Uh, it's an incredible loss when, when they get hit. And they don't realize that, um, you know, there's different ways it could happen. But uh, if they're using credit cards, they have an agreement with their merchant acquirers. And uh, a lot of small, medium-sized business think, you know, I, I, I'm covered because, you know, I got a great card processor, got a great uh, POS uh, company behind me. And they don't realize that in the fine print of the merchant acquire agreement, 
it stipulates that they have to be compliant with payment card industry data security standards. And you look at 12 pretty um, straightforward requirements, but there's over 300 subcomponents. And if they fail, and they find out very quickly when they fail, because when there's a breach, the first thing they find out is there's got to be a forensic audit, and there's a select number of auditors that the merchant acquirer will allow to come in. It's a very intrusive process, and that uh, can add up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand a pop for each location. And then they find out too that the merchant acquirer contractually can freeze their accounts receivable, six figures. And I don't know that many small, medium-sized restaurants and franchisees uh, that can survive for any length of time having $100,000 or so. And then there's penalties and fees that the merchant acquirer uh, can assess, chargebacks, uh, uh, charges for reissuance of cards, remediation, litigation comes into play oftentimes. So it's no wonder that so many of these uh, small and medium-sized businesses go out. So the short answer is, I mean, that this is just a new cost of doing business, right? It, it is. It, it's the reality. And even, you know, sometimes I hear it with larger enterprises. We, we serve a good many larger enterprises that, you know, of course, uh, have a lot of uh, smaller customers and uh, franchisee chains, um, locations. And sometimes um, you have where, well, gee, we, we, we're going to get to this. We know it's important. But we have a couple of really high-charging executives that there's revenue uh, projects that the IT department needs to work on first. And very frankly, we even had that. I'm not going to name the company. But uh, we heard that, and they were breached before we could do anything for them, mm. which, which is really un- unfortunate. So uh, actually, that brings up an- another question. So let's say somebody's listening to this too late, or they're acting on it too late. Right. I'm a small company, or any company, I guess. It probably doesn't matter. And I discover that uh, I've likely been breached. Right. What do I do? Well, it depends on what kind of breach. But uh, uh, the first thing that they should do really is um, get in touch with an attorney who is proficient and expert in this field. A lot of lawyers aren't. Uh, you want to call your, your merchant acquirer if it's uh, card information, uh, your POS provider. But uh, law enforcement comes into play in a hurry. And you want to make sure oftentimes it's Secret Service. Now the FBI is taking uh, um, even more responsibility. The Secret Service, really? The Secret Service. Well, it's, uh, a lot of this really comes down to Homeland Security. I guess so, yeah. And, and uh, you know, we'll talk about it a little while if you like. But, uh, uh, you know, they're always looking to see if nation states uh, are involved as well. So um, you, in terms of law enforcement, normally it's not the locals. It's the Secret Service and the FBI that get involved. It's that serious. And, of course, they have the expertise and the capabilities and resources to really uh, do what needs to be done from a forensic standpoint. Now, a lot of companies are, are putting their data into the cloud now, small right. companies. I did when I had my own firm. I had everything on OneDrive. Right. Should that give me any comfort that my data is any more secure than if we're just sort of sitting around on a client computer or, or a, um, if I were hosting my own server? Well, the, the answer is a qualified yes. Okay. I mean, it's uh, – uh, but, you know, I was with somebody the other day and said, well, I checked off that box. We should be good. We're, we're in the cloud. Uh, well, think about that. I mean, really, you need to make sure that, one, it's a very reputable – a company, and you need to ask a lot of questions and take a look at that agreement 
because uh, the way they look at it is it's a shared risk. And again, you know, a lot of things, you know, sure, you don't have to worry about servers uh, uh, anymore and backups, but at the same time, all those other things and the employee issues are still there. So you have that. And, and you know, these, um, these cloud servers are the targets of, uh, of a lot of attacks because naturally there's so many company information, so many companies involved with that, that they're a bigger target. And so they get attacked. And uh, I even heard of a situation, too, where uh, there was an issue as to um, when a company, there was a dispute as far as payment, paying to the cloud service provider, and the cloud service provider uh, took their data. They said, that's ours. If you look at the contract, uh, it belongs to us now. So uh, it is risk sharing. It is something where uh, I do advocate a cloud solution, but really do your homework and make sure it's the right one. And don't kid yourself in terms of believing that uh, once you do that, that your worries are over. Uh, right, because somebody could still give away that laptop, but if it has access to your OneDrive account, it doesn't matter. You still have that vulnerability. That's exactly right, Mike. So um, what, what about insurance? Is this, something, is this a risk that you can purchase insurance against? Well, the, the answer is yes. And uh, there's some very good cybersecurity policies out there. And uh, as you can imagine, more and more carriers have, have gone into this. Uh, years ago, that, that wasn't the case. Now, again, a caveat that uh, you have to take a look very carefully at the wording of those insurance policies. I mean, they may not cover penalties. They may not cover forensic audits, attorney's fees. I mean, there's so many different things that could be excluded, and you're on your own, and you're really having a problem. So uh, uh, as a matter of fact, one of our clients' uh, customers in SureTrust, they are a pioneer in cybersecurity and uh, um, uh, security of six power, working with them to make sure that uh, uh, through their brokers, uh, folks can really pay attention to that. Are there certain kinds of businesses that tend to be more more attractive targets or tend to be more vulnerable than others? Well, the, the, the answer is yes. That, uh, uh, first of all, we, we talked about the ones who are most vulnerable are the ones that uh, uh, aren't paying attention and aren't doing what they need to in the way of safeguards. But, uh, but as far as vulnerable companies are concerned, I mean, look at, uh, and it's a little scary when you look at our power grid, utility companies, uh, energy. I mean, now they're getting to the point where they're really – paying attention, and there's new regulations. Of course, government, so with the executive order last year, then uh, government agencies have to do assessments now. So that, that's the good news. That, uh, uh, but if you look at uh, the sensitivity with government information, uh, in, in South Carolina, there was a big breach a few years ago. I remember uh, that. Yeah, I think it was $3.8 million. I mean, excuse me, 3.8 million uh, personal records, records data yeah. records uh, that were affected and compromised. And... Um, um, just think how powerful that information is. And, and a lot of times, these hackers, you know, when it was a credit card information, there's a short shelf life. And they have to really do what they can there, you know, in terms of fraud. But that's not the case with our social security numbers and date of birth. And we have children that will come of age and, and more people start making money. And uh, it, it, it's a treasure trove. So, you know, government, unfortunately, is, uh, has been vulnerable. Um, healthcare with that anthem breach, remember that. Uh, uh, that was, uh, I believe, about 78 million uh, people were affected by that. And right now you have in America, uh, one in eight Americans have had their health information compromised. 
which is very sobering. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of commentators will tell you that the next big thing outside of ransomware is that, uh, and everybody's watching to see these data aggregators, which have so much information, that they, uh, so much more than even Equifax, my old employer, uh, and they have sensitive information. I mean, when you have information that uh, deals with uh, health, um, I hate to bring it up, but uh, Ashley Madison with, with that breach, there were sure. actually some suicides, there were some uh, uh, extortion. They went out of business overnight. Uh, and, and you had where, where people actually uh, uh, were shamed because what was on, and, and then you have people with health care uh, items on their medical records that they don't want released. So there's so much sensitivity and there's so much uh, vulnerability to that kind of data. And I'm, I'm, I speculate but don't know. I'm curious. Are, are companies that have electronic point of sale, do they tend to be more vulnerable than others just because they, those kinds of businesses have a – by necessity have a front-facing basically portal to their data <laughs> to the public? Right. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, yes. I mean, the good news is uh, point-of-sale systems have gotten better. But the, the thing that people don't realize so many times, customers don't realize, is that when they get the POS system, they're represented that, hey, this is PCI compliance, compliant. What they do after with that system may very well take it out of compliance. Hmm. And that, you know, it's how you use that. You have employees surfing. And, I mean, there's so many different ways that uh, there could be an issue. It may not be the system itself, but how the system is, is applied. Um, there's a lot of talk about foreign f- hacking of foreign origin, most, most notably North Korea, Russia, and China. Right. Is is that accurate? Is is most of the is most of the 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 breaching activity indeed coming from abroad, or is that just sort of so much media attention? But there's just as much coming domestically. No, that, that that's pretty accurate. I mean, you, we have our share domestically, but you have from you know abroad two different types. You have the nation state, you know, where it's actually uh, the governments we're talking about. You mentioned North Korea, Iran is part of it too, uh, China, and of course China's well-renowned in terms of infamous as far as IP. Um, So you have the nation states, and then you have the individuals where oftentimes law enforcement is more lax. And, you know, it's interesting that there are theories about why you have so many of these hackers, these individual hackers or syndicates in Eastern Europe uh, and uh, these other sites that we're talking about. And uh, some people speculate it's because they have uh, early education, heavy IT training uh, in the lower schools, middle schools, and yet they do not have a Silicon Valley and the type of uh, opportunities in, um, in companies in the private sector to really take that skill and do something good and beneficial to it. And that's not condoning in any way, but it's just a theory as to why uh, there may be so many out there than uh, uh, focusing their attention. I mean, these are bright people. They, they could and should be spending their time doing something uh, on the good side and uh, making their money uh, properly. And they'd probably make a lot given how bright they are. Well, and you know, I guess just it goes back to the, the very old adage, right? Idle hands at the devil's playground, right? True, so, very, very true. And I, I suspect also that, you know, the, the, a, a cyber criminal in Russia knows that they're not going to be prosecuted. That's right. For hacking an American system. 
Right? That's they're, exactly they're right. They're just not. As long could, as could our, be a hero, could be a hero, right? Yeah. They could be. They could get a medal. Yeah. Right? So, as long as our relationship with the Russians is the way it is, you know, they, they can practice that with impunity. So, unfortunately, so. Um, one of the last questions I want to cover before we wrap up today is is about GDPR. Um, there's a lot of lot of coverage in that in the media. It's obvious it's it's a European data standard, a data security standard. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and at, you know, at what point does a typical American business need to be concerned with it? Well, that, that that's a great question. Uh, GDPR is the uh, General Data Protection uh, Regulation, and uh, that came into effect last uh, last May. And uh, really. What you're seeing here, and, and it's considered um, to be the biggest privacy uh, uh, change, uh, dramatic change in well over 20 years. I mean, now Parliament, the EU Parliament passed this, and, uh, uh, and it's a matter of law. So it's not just best practices or standards uh, they have to require. require. And uh, really what, what's fascinating about this, and I'm sure you read with Zuckerberg where he said, uh, I mean, he's been grilled, and Facebook uh, executives have been grilled. Uh, shouldn't there be a GDPR kind of regulation in the states? Yep. And uh, and he actually said that he would advocate for some form of regulations uh, modeled after the GDPR. And what what's the GDPR? What the GDPR is all about is it really gives back to um, to individuals, to consumers, to uh, um, to consumers, the right to have some control and to manage their personal data. Uh, and it gets to the point where data subjects have the right to ask the company what information it has about them and what the company does with this information. In addition, data subject has the right to ask the, uh, for corrections. Uh, they can object to processing. They can lodge a complaint. And they can even ask for deletion of the information. So this is a sea change. And it's something that U.S. companies have to deal with now on two levels. One is that if you are, a, um, say, in the hospitality field, travel, uh, software engineer, a marketing company, um, wherein you have that kind of personal information on EU residents, look, if you have a targeted website, and you deal, do business with Europe, then you are affected by this. And it is something that is enforceable. And the penalties are incredible. You, you have where it could be up to 2% or 4%, depending how egregious it is, of the total global annual turnover, which, of course, is, uh, is revenue. revenue. Yes, yep, yes, there. you know better than anybody else. Yep. Uh, or 10 million or 20 million pounds, whichever is greater. So... You're looking at something that really has teeth in it. And what you're seeing now is you've heard of the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which goes into effect uh, beginning of, uh, of next year, 2020. They have modeled their regulations uh, you know, after the GDPR. And you're going to see other states now take that up. You may end up with a patchwork of, of states uh, doing that. And then, you know, there's talk about the federal uh, government uh, doing a national government as well. So uh, it's something that is uh, a lot of um, people are, are excited about. Uh, it's going to change things dramatically. But the, the good news is that consumers 
now are going to have the ability to better control and manage and give consent to how data about them, personal data, is being used, particularly if it's other than what was uh, obtained for, purpose it was obtained for. All right, so we're, we're, uh, we're running out of time here, but, um, and we're only scratching the surface. It's such a, <laughs> such a deep topic. You know, this could easily be a one-week seminar, and we're, yes. even then we're just getting started. <laughs> if someone wants to contact you to learn more about this, maybe explore what their company's needs are, how can they find you? We'd be delighted to talk to them. I'm, uh, uh, they could look at uh, about.datasecurityu.com, and they can call me at uh, 404-245-6751 or email me at choff, H-O-F-F, at datasecurityu.com. Be delighted to, this is my life, and uh, delighted to talk to them, however we can help. Okay, well, very good. That's, uh, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I would like to thank Charles Hoff so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.